0: Hello and welcome back to Who Rules Cyberspace, a new mini-series from Chatham House on the Undercurrents podcast feed. In this series, we're asking what states, the private sector and civil society can do to keep people safe online and realise the benefits of digital technologies while minimising the threats they pose. I'm Ben Horson. I'm a communications manager at Chatham House and I'm the co-host of Undercurrents. And I'm joined down the line as ever for this series by my colleague Joyce Hackmay. Joyce, how are you?
1: I'm very good. How are you, Vin?
0: Yes, really well, thank you, really well. I greatly enjoyed our conversation on episode one, Joyce, where we set out the background to this discussion around cyberspace governance. I'd encourage listeners, if they haven't already, to go back and listen to that first episode so that you know what the basis of our discussion is today. But Joyce, why don't you tell us a bit about our focus of this episode?
1: So Ben, in this episode, we will be speaking to representatives from states. And our two guests uh, have been taking part in these uh, negotiations in the state negotiations on cyber governance. And they will share with us their insights as to the opportunities, the challenges and the progress that has been achieved to date.
0: Lovely stuff. And who did you speak to?
1: I spoke to uh, Mudjehi Makumani, who is the special advisor to the group of governmental experts from uh, South Africa and who's also very involved in the negotiations of the open-ended working group. And talked about the added value that countries like South Africa have brought to the negotiations so far, but she also talked about the challenges they face by trying to have a meaningful engagement. And who did you speak to, Ben?
0: So I spoke to Carmen Gonzalez head of the International Cyber Policy Department at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And Carmen talked us through the progress that has been made at the GGE process so far, talked about the acceptance of voluntary norms around the rules of the road on on cyber governance and what the approach of the Dutch government has been in trying to promote these norms on the global stage. That sounds great. Let's have a listen.
1: I'm very pleased to be joined today by Modiehi Makumani, who is the special advisor to the GGE expert from South Africa and who has been playing a very important role in the negotiations in the open-ended working group as well. Welcome, Modiehi.
2: Thank you, Joyce. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Modiehi, as we know, for anyone who's following the cyberspace debate, We know that it has been primarily dominated by a small number of states who have been setting the agenda for quite some time. With the open-ended working group a couple of years ago now, this has changed and the negotiations opened up to all the UN member states. Do you think that these newcomers are able to shape the debate in the way that they are expected? And what role have they been playing so far in your opinion?
2: Thanks a lot, Joyce. As a newcomer ourselves, I think the mainstream discussions have improved. And I think it's for the better. I think the newcomers bring a diversity of opinion and input and even a diversity in terms of the situational analysis of how we locate the discussions themselves. Speaking from the global South, but also as an African country, I think that that's really been the strength that we have brought to the discussions. Global South African countries are more about the preventive diplomacy part in these discussions. We are more about amplifying the positive attributes of cyberspace. And I think we've also managed in a way to also tilt the discussions a bit more towards defensive capabilities and not so much sticking the discussions to talking about offensive capabilities and i think that's a real strength that as newcomers we have really brought in and we've also mainstreamed the discussion i think to a huge extent by making our voices more inclusive i think we because we also bring our civil society our industry we've we've also Made significant work in terms of mainstreaming the discussion and not having it as an elite type of discussion for only some.
1: So, mainstreaming the conversation, bringing diversity of opinions, and also working with non state actors this is, in your opinion, what you have been able to achieve so far. But what sort of challenges in, in trying to perform this role? I mean, obviously, you start somewhere, but eventually you'd like to be able to play a bigger role. What sort of challenges do you, countries like South Africa face in, in, in these negotiations, whether in the cyberspace, but also in other negotiations that has to do with information, communication technologies? What do you think these challenges are? And how do you think you can overcome these challenges? What do you need to be able to
2: do that? We've had a lot of internal discussions about this, and sometimes it can be a challenge, but what we see is that it's just perhaps the dynamic of the field itself. There are so many stakeholders, and there are so many platforms, so many forums, so many initiatives, and that's not always easy to maneuver in because it's not it's not always easy for a country of the south or an african country to be everywhere and and one of the biggest principles of of multilateralism is you have to be in the room to shape the debate. You have to be at the table, you know, and we're not always at the table. And sometimes it is deliberate. We have taken principal positions where we've said the United Nations should be the main board body in which these discussions take place. And we haven't always taken as quickly as some countries have to platforms or initiatives that are outside of the un but like i'm saying it can be a challenge but also we've also come to learn that that is perhaps also just a dynamic of the field And so what we are doing consciously now is trying to then figure out if we are not in the room and we don't really want to be in the room, figuring out who is in the room and how can we nurture those relationships and create those open communication lines. It's been a lesson for us, but it's also a lesson that we've also shared with member states who develop initiatives outside of the UN to say when you do develop these initiatives, also look who is not in the room and find a way to also find us to create that open communication line. And I don't see it stopping anytime soon just because of the nature of the field, but that's, that's where we are right now. Of course, positions might change. Multilateralism, I think, is evolving in, in some ways, which is why we were so grateful that the open-ended working group had that must multi-stakeholder consultation built into it. Because that gave us an opportunity to engage with stakeholders that we haven't been able to engage with because they've traditionally been outside the UN, which is what we for a very long time focus on. And we want everything to come into the UN, you know, for South Africa, all roads lead to the UN, but it's, it's definitely been a lesson for us. You highlighted a very
1: important point about the multi-stakeholder engagement and being able to speak to actors and get the the opinions of actors who are not normally around the table, which, as you said, is quite exclusive to a certain players and to states if if we're talking about the UN. But these actors have voiced also some frustration throughout the process about, yes, we have engaged, but this engagement is not enough. We want to be able to take part in the conversation. We want to be involved more. We want our voice to be heard. Now, some argue that if you can not do it within the UN, you can do it outside the UN and you can still have uh, an impact and you will be still able to shape uh, the negotiations. Do you agree with that? That Where where do you stand on this engagement? Is it enough, should be improved? Are there alternative ways to, to make it happen?
2: There must be alternative ways. And if if they don't exist, we're going to have to find them, you know. The engagement so far from us has been an absolute eye-opener. As a foreign ministry, your bread and butter is member states. We put a lot of time into understanding why member states behave the way they do, why they do what they do. And for a long time, because of that kind of bias, if I can call it, When you look at stakeholders outside, we see other motivations, you know, profit and other things. And that has created a bit of apprehension sometimes to increase the discussions to to where they can potentially be. But I think it's, it's a matter of time and a matter of just creating those spaces and keeping the communication lines open. Because what we've seen in this space is that corporations aren't just in it for profit, which was a big, you know, eye-opener. They're not just in it for their profit margins they are also trying to make and contribute, you know. And we've seen it in other forums. We've seen how the SDGs have taken on some of these stakeholders and been successful. And so it's not as if the UN doesn't have ways in which they've done this. We just need to also find a way to do it in this platform. And again, for, for countries like us that can't be everywhere all the time, we really hope that the UN can find a way to play a role and for people who do take things outside the UN to find a way to include the UN, you know. And through that, I think that a lot more countries will participate and the debate will become robust, comprehensive, and we'll actually get somewhere.
1: It's very important what you highlighted. We have to find new ways. We have to think outside the box. Be creative how we do this engagement. But I also like what you said about being proactive, that you reach out as well and not expect that everyone will have to come to you. And the importance of creating linkages with other processes, uh, that I think uh, is, is very important. And you sound kind of quite optimistic about your role so far. Although, you know, After several rounds of the negotiations, if we talk about the more substantive issues, I believe it is safe to say that the different views that countries have been holding for a number of years are not really converging. How do you feel about that? Are you optimistic about what the negotiations will actually achieve in terms of reaching cyber stability or moving, you know, some good steps forward towards that? And what are the
2: biggest risks that you worry about? I think negotiations are difficult, regardless of, of the topic that you are dealing with. They are uniquely difficult in terms of this, because this is not the wheelhouse of every member state. You know, when, when we were new to this, we, we were very open to say, this is not topmost priority. In our part of the world, you know, our African union is still is still preoccupied with certain things which which for other regions aren't as important to them now as as they are to to us. And so that's something that dampers our optimism in a way to say, will we all be able to come to the table the same way to want to achieve that cyber stability? But also, I am a bit optimistic because the processes have made sure that everyone who wants to be around the table is there. And we now have a voice. And so if we fail, it won't be for a lack of participation. I don't think it will be for a lack of want um, or a lack of material. Because there's a lot. Member states are saying a lot. Stakeholders are saying a lot. So if we fail, it won't be because there was a lack of that. One of our fears is as we continue with the debate, we're also realizing that there are some member states that have very solid positions and it's difficult for them to move on, on certain things. You know, as newcomers, we we still have, we have parameters, but we are flexible because we are listening, we are learning, we are observing. But some member states are almost boxed in, in terms of what has been published, what has been publicly declared or proclaimed. And so you can't walk that back. And so it, it's, it has affected their flexibility in the discussions. And that's been a bit frustrating for member states um, like South Africa, that at some point we have to move, which is why in the GGE, the South African expert advocate Mashabani has tried to encourage his counterparts in there to say, since here we are experts and we're supposed to advise the SG let's advise the sg based on our expert advice and to not tie ourselves too much on the national positions here we we will not be what we say will not be attributed to to our member states so let's really think out of the box and because it's it's a unique space to be able to do something like that as opposed to the other forums and so I think there is a way and creative ways that, that we can get to where we want to get, but it's, it's going to be difficult. The chairs and the secretariat are doing a, a tremendously amazing job. We are friends of the chairs, but it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. So I think cautiously optimistic is where I am right now.
1: And with cautiously optimistic, unfortunately, we're ending this fascinating conversation with you, Motiehi. Thank you very much for uh, these great insights. And thank you for sharing uh, your opinion candidly with us. All the luck with the rest of the uh, negotiation process. And we look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Joyce. Thank you, Chatham House. Thank you for having us.
0: So for our next interview, I'm joined by Carmen Gonsalves. Carmen is the head of the International Cyber Policy Department at the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the co-chair of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. She's responsible for international peace and security in cyberspace, capacity building, digital rights and cyber related policies within the department in conjunction with the European Union, NATO, the United Nations and the OSCE. On behalf of the Netherlands, she served between 2016 and 2017 as an expert to the UN group of governmental experts on developments in the field of information and telecommunications in the context of international security, which is an incredibly long title. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Ben. It's really a great pleasure to be uh, on this podcast. Thanks. Thanks.
0: So as we've heard so far in this series, states have been negotiating the rules of the road in cyberspace for several years now. Are you satisfied with the progress that these negotiations have been able to achieve thus far? And could you maybe give us some concrete examples of how these negotiations are helping to create a more peaceful and stable Mm. cyberspace?
3: Thanks, Ben. Yes, indeed, Um, states have been um, negotiating already for nearly 20 years now, but especially during the last 10 years or especially since 2013, uh, from my perspective, new momentum was created and uh, that has also led to more results. But this momentum also coincided, of course, with a more difficult period of time in uh, geopolitics and that also resulted in more hurdles. But on balance, definitely some very encouraging progress has been made. However, of course, we're not there yet. We're not out of the woods, especially taking into account that the speed of digitization and the, our dependencies and our vulnerabilities are increasing day by day.
0: Thank you. Um, just as a quick follow-up to that, what have been, in your experience, the major challenges or obstacles that these negotiations have had to overcome?
3: The geopolitical context, the struggle and competition between, um, well, the major players in the world. Uh, is not only visible and noticeable in our physical world, but also more and more in the cyber dimension. Due to the fact that the physical world and the cyber world are are merging more and more, in the cyber world we encounter the same controversies and tensions as in in the physical world, Um, be it from the viewpoint of, of principles, but also when it comes to, of course, to interests that are contradictory between the major players. However the differences of opinion the clashes of, of of viewpoints on for example the governance of the internet uh, those who view uh, the, the internet as a as an open space governed by all stakeholders where individual liberties should be upheld just like in the physical world uh, against those who have a more autocratic view of the internet and everything around it is, of course, uh, an important factor in political discussions in the UN and elsewhere uh, on questions on how to govern and how to ensure stability in that space. However, I do think that notwithstanding those controversies, and as I said before, some important progress has been made especially first and foremost in the GGEs, uh, these groups of governmental experts that are held in the UN um, every couple of years. In 2013, an important milestone was reached when uh, states participating by consensus acknowledged that existing international law is applicable in cyberspace. For example, notions like sovereignty or or non-intervention, but also the applicability of human rights and the Charter of the United Nations are, I think, very important points of consensus that hopefully bring us further. In 2015, even more progress was was booked when 11 norms of responsible state behavior were agreed upon that complement the international law. For example, cover important issues like protecting critical infrastructure against cyber operations, as well as protecting computer emergency response teams, the uh, cyber fire brigades, let's uh, put it that way, uh, against malicious cyber operations. I think these notions are are important. And uh, of course, the, whole, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And it all boils down to implementing those norms. And that's, of course, an, an issue where we still are not where we want
0: to be. Thank you. Now, I wanted to ask a question about the effectiveness of the negotiations at the United Nations level. I think there's there's a notion that sometimes conversations at the UN level can become isolated from world events and become part of a, a larger diplomatic game, while the sort of real issues are going unaddressed. Do you think that that's a fair depiction?
3: It is true of course that when we look at the state of affairs and norms adherence there is of course reason to be well i'm not, not well skeptical is perhaps a too big word but at least to to question the efficacy of the un processes however that of course applies to un agreements in a, in a much broader in a much broader sense and it always uh, is a struggle to ensure that what is on paper is also observed in, in, in practice. And I think it, cyberspace is not is not different, but perhaps even more challenging given the the nature of cyberspace and and given the well the reality that, for example, malicious cyber operations are more difficult to detect and attribute than malicious acts in the physical world that are usually though not always a bit more visible and that and therefore uh, more difficult to deny however that being said i think that slowly we are indeed uh, as an international community and especially i think the like-minded liberal uh, democracies represented there are taking steps to ensure that there are means to um, foster implementation and and abidance by those norms and how do you do that in practice that is of course uh, a matter of first and foremost diplomatic cooperation that has manifested itself uh, lately in for example more naming and shaming um, of malicious cyber operations when there was a good base to attribute them and um, the installation of of a sanctioned regime, for example, in the EU, and the application of sanctions on entities and individuals responsible for malicious cyber operations. And though those steps are also not a panacea, they are definitely a part of a puzzle, um, they're part of a a combination, a a set of measures that we together can uh, implement in order to increase the cost of irresponsible behaviour and to promote responsible behaviour aimed at stability and maintaining an open, free and secure cyberspace. We, we made some steps in advance of the areas, where we made some steps in advance over the last couple of years, also inspired by negotiations in the UN, but also outside the UN, because I think it's very important to understand that the UN negotiations about norms are important, because these negotiations are about how states have to behave themselves. And that's, of course, their prime responsibility to uh, agree on norms and to abide by them. But uh, cyberspace is, of course, uh, for more than 90 percent in the hands of private entities and the tech community. Thus, it's indispensable that when drawing up norms and, and rules... We take on board views from private enterprises, private players, actors and tech community and academics and civil society in a broader sense. That's one point I wanted to make, but also that we realize that there's a, a very uneven spread of cyber capacity around the world. And that not only negatively affect the prospects of socio economic advancement of, of countries and, and and creates this this digital divide but also disables or frustrates the the efforts of countries to protect themselves uh, against possible negative impacts and, and threats that are uh, abound uh, in, in cyberspace so Capacity building is much more on the radar of of many countries and private entities as well. And the efforts to help others in that regard have increased. And to my mind, that is essential because if we do not invest collectively in cyber capacity, we will not be able to reap the benefits of digitization and um, keep the uh, possible negative consequences uh, at bay. So that's something I, I want to highlight, that there we should states and non-state actors together continue to invest and increase
0: investments from the level that they are at at this moment. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the actions that the Dutch government has taken to promote the observance of these norms that were agreed.
3: Yeah, first of all, we embrace them ourselves, um, most notably in a letter that our Minister sent to Parliament last year, in which he explicitly endorsed the applicability of international law in cyberspace and also explicitly embraced the 11 norms of responsible state behaviour defined by the UN. But besides that, uh, on top of that, we've also uh, developed policy and we try to promote policy elsewhere in the EU, for example, that helps us to cover, to, to bridge this accountability gap um, that we do observe, because there are rules and they are, as such, there are rules and norms, they are such a really great and, and important, but there is still a lot to be desired when it comes to uh, implementation and adherence. So we think that for the sake of accountability, it's important to uh, work together internationally and to tackle that and to have effective uh, instruments at hand. And that's why we promoted EU cyber sanctions regime that gives us the possibility as EU to impose sanctions, uh, travel bans and asset freezes on individuals and entities uh, deemed responsible for cyber threat. Um, This year, indeed, we also took the second step. This summer, the EU imposed sanctions on uh, six individuals, and uh, three entities considered and uh, deemed responsible for for cyber threats and, and, and with serious consequences, like WannaCry that affected the National Health Service in the UK, uh, NotPetya, the attempt to hack the OPCW, etc. That was, I think, an important step that we took uh, this year and where we hope. Uh, we can take further steps uh, in the future as well. And hopefully those sanctions will increase the cost of um, bad behavior and promote responsible behavior that will help us to stabilize cyberspace.
0: Thank you. Now, the last question that I wanted to put to you refers to sort of the pace of technological change. Um, mm-hmm. Within this space, technological developments are often far more advanced than the efforts to regulate or deal with the threats that result from that innovation. So as someone who has worked in the policy sphere on, on these issues for so, for so many years... Do you think that states can catch up with the reality of technological change? And if so, how can they do that? How can they ensure that they're not always playing catch up?
3: Now, of course, it's important to highlight that technological change as such is not the issue at hand in the sense that it's not that... Technology is the threat. It's, it's um, the way we use technology. It's, it's our behavior as individuals and as states that can uh, pose a threat to international peace and security. So technology as such is not a problem. It's about uh, regulating behavior and stimulating proper behavior. So therefore, rules and norms for responsible behavior, in principle, should be tech neutral because, and as you remarked, Technological change goes so fast, you cannot keep up with that. You cannot regulate every bit of behavior in relation to a new feature of technological advancement. So that's what we aim for, tech-neutral norms that are applicable in the future as well, that are future-proof. And I do think that that norms that have been identified in the UN, like indeed uh, do not attack each other's critical infrastructure... In peacetime, or do not attack each other's uh, certs in peacetime, but also to my mind, and there's not complete agreement on that, but many, many countries, more and more countries, and the ICRC also confirm this, are, are very much behind this. International humanitarian law, for example, should be applicable in cyberspace, in conflict, in times of conflict, in order to protect populations and individuals against uh, undue aggression, that's uh, also a a general rule that should be applicable in the years and decades to come, whatever the exact stage of technological uh, advancement. What I do feel is that we should be much clearer and much more explicit in explaining how those rules, those tech neutral rules that we have been identifying and international law apply in cyberspace. What does it mean? And then uh, in that regard, it is important to take into account that, for example, the world has already changed in 2015 when we identified those 11 norms of responsible state behavior. And it's good to uh, take on board what has happened since then, election interference in in the US, in in Europe, in France and other places of the world, but also the threats to the public core of the internet. This year, during COVID-19, we experienced this remarkable increase unfortunately, in cyber attacks on institutions related to public health, hospitals, research entities, etc. That's something that is definitely, to my mind, covered by those norms, in the sense that those norms that we agreed upon, for example, in particular the norm on critical infrastructure, protection of critical infrastructure, to my mind, applies to elections, applies to the public core of the internet, to the naming and forwarding functions, the, the core functions of the internet that should be protected, and also to our, our health sector, regardless of whether countries, individual countries, have designated the health sector as part of the critical infrastructure. I think that everybody around the world will acknowledge that the health sector is a vital a service that should be protected and, and beyond malicious operations at all times.
0: Carmen Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So that's it for this episode of Who Rules Cyberspace, the Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrent's podcast feed. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear the rest of our output in this series, then please do subscribe to Undercurrents on whichever podcast app you use. And if you've enjoyed it a lot, we would love it if you would leave us a review because it makes it far easier for other people to find us. If you'd like to hear more about the work that Joyce, Hakme and the team in the International Security Program are doing, you can follow them on Twitter at Chatham House ISR. Of course, huge thanks need to go to Esther Naylor in the International Security Programme, who has put this series together and has provided editing support. And also thank you to Jamie Reid, our sound producer for Undercurrents, who has been with us throughout this crazy year of, of enormous amounts of podcast output. And of course, thank you to the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their support of the Cyberspace for All project. We'll be back tomorrow with some more exciting conversations. Until then, I'm Ben Horton, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.